Well, I love putting puzzles together, jigsaw puzzles. Um, does anybody else, do we have any other puzzle lovers here? Yeah, got a few, got a few, all right. I love just the, the calming effect. Uh, I know other people disagree, they're like, it drives me crazy, but for me, I can just focus on what I'm doing, I can shut out everything else. It's a very peaceful thing, it's a very calming thing. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I had a I had a puzzle of the Wizard of Oz, like the movie poster, and I loved putting that puzzle together. It was just, it was so fun, and just, I don't know, my brain kind of works that way. Um, And then probably like, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago, uh, when we were living in China, I had a puzzle. It was actually a a scene, the manger scene of of Jesus' birth, and um, I had bought that puzzle when we were in America, and I brought it back, and I was like, I want to put a puzzle together without looking at the cover, Okay. Now, I obviously, I bought it, right, so I knew what it looked like, but I, I opened it up, and I just, I put the cover away, and I never looked at it. So I didn't really, I didn't study it, I didn't memorize it, I didn't know exactly, you know, where everything fit together. And that was a crazy experience. Um, it took a really long time. Uh, you know, you, I kind of separated everything out into colors, and then I started putting sections together, but then... You know, the sections didn't really necessarily go where I thought they were going to go. And I think it was like a thousand-piece puzzle, so it was pretty big. And that was just, that was an interesting experience of trying to fit everything together and kind of figure out where all the pieces went. And there's kind of this, you know, unfolding mystery that, that happens as you're going through that process. Well, we've been going through the book of Genesis. We, February through May, we went through the first 22 chapters of Genesis. And we saw chapters 1 through 11, we saw kind of the, the whole beginning story of creation, chapters 1 and 2. Saw the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of all humanity into sin in chapter 3. And then the effects that followed that from chapter 6 through 9 with the flood. And then we see the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. So that's kind of the first big chunk of Genesis. And then in chapter 12, we're introduced to Abraham. God calls Abraham to leave his country, to leave his people, to follow him, and to go to a place that God will show him. And we're kind of introduced to this, this family that God calls to himself, this people that God calls to himself. And really, from chapter 12 all the way to the end of the book, it's this unfolding story of this family. And there are promises that God makes. Uh, some of the themes we've been talking about in Genesis, are people, place, and presence. So God calls a people to himself. He promises to give them a place. And then he says, I will be with you. There's that promise of, of presence. So people, place, and presence, or descendants, land, and, and the promise to be their God. We've also been talking about kind of this idea of, of puzzle pieces and how everything fits together. We've been talking about how does Genesis point us forward to Christ? And that's really a huge focus of what we're trying to do here as we study Genesis. How do these things point us forward to Christ? How do these pieces fit together? And how does our reading of Genesis inform our reading of all the rest of Scripture? So many of these things that we've been talking about in Genesis have been very foundational to the rest of the Bible. And I would argue that we can't really understand the Bible and read the Bible without having a good grasp of Genesis and how God created the world and how God called a people to himself and sent them out to really to be his ambassadors in the world. So, so what is God up to? We're kind of asking these questions. I think I shared this early on, uh, a quote from Gordon Wenham, who's kind of one of the top 
Old Testament scholars, he says, Genesis is primarily about God's character and his purposes for sinful mankind. God's character and his purposes for sinful mankind. And these stories that we're going to be looking at of Abraham and his descendants here from chapter 23 to chapter 50, which is, we're going to tackle that over these next several months from, from now until the end of the year. These stories of these people really help us to see these two things that Wenham talks about. To see God's character, see who God is, how he relates to us, and to see his purposes for sinful mankind. Some of these stories are very happy stories. We have stories of of births, of children, of of marriage, of, of celebrating. But there are some incredibly tragic stories. If you're familiar at all with this section of Genesis, there's some hard stuff. And we're going to we're going to dive in. We're going to look at some of these tragic and difficult stories that the people of God had to, to live through and deal with. So tons of family drama, right? I think most of us probably have experienced family drama in our lives. So this is not that foreign to us, okay? This is not that far away from us in a lot of ways. And my prayer for us through this study, through Genesis here, is that through both the happiness and the tragedy that we will be encouraged to not lose heart when life feels puzzling, when we feel like the pieces don't all fit together. And we concluded at the end of May with God's promise to Abraham and Sarah of Isaac's birth. And we talked about waiting on God's promises. So we kind of ended going into the summer with that idea of waiting on God's promises. And we said that it's, it's hard to wait oftentimes in our life, right? It's hard to be patient. It's hard to wait when God says, I'm going to do this thing, and then we're like, all right, what's happening? I don't see it happening. That's hard. And I think we easily lose hope because we want all the puzzle pieces to fit together, right? We want everything to look the way it's supposed to look. And we want it to fit now, right? We don't want to wait. We want it now. And we want to see, we want to see the whole picture of what God is up to. But most of us can can admit, can acknowledge, that is not the way that life often works, right? We are called to hope, and we are called to wait for God's promises to be fulfilled in his timing and according to his purposes. So let's go to God's word together. Let's see how the promises that God made begin to unfold and how the pieces start to fit together a little more clearly. Genesis chapter 23, we're going to read the whole chapter. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you this tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. 
Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the city, at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, in the sight of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which is which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for Genesis. We thank you for uh, these stories of of these saints in the Old Testament and how they do point us forward to Christ. Lord, we ask that our eyes would be open to see you, to see your plan, uh, that our ears would be attentive to hear from you, God, that you would lead us and guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one other thing that we talked about as we were going through the, through the first half of Genesis there was this idea of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. How those are kind of four chapters, four parts of how kind of Genesis plays out. And it's kind of a, a picture of how the whole story of the Bible plays out. God's creation, God's good creation, our fall into sin. Christ's redemption, and then the consummation as we wait for his return. And we're going to actually, I think, see three of those. I think fall, redemption, and consummation all kind of play out a little bit in this text here, in this passage today. And the, the whole story is going to start off with a death, right? If you are with us this summer, going through Ecclesiastes, you're thinking, Oh, great. (laughs) Like, all we've been talking about all summer long is death, right? I want to get past this. Now here we are back in Genesis, and you're starting us off with this story of Sarah's death. Didn't we get enough of that? Well, I guess not. (laughs) But we're going to look at this passage in three parts. First thing we're going to look at is that we should grieve and weep over the effects of sin. We should grieve and weep over the effects of sin. And this is the kind of the fall section here. Starts off, we're told about Sarah and her life and her death. Abraham grieves for her. He grieves, he weeps, and he mourns for Sarah. Now, they've probably been married for over a hundred years. Can you imagine that? A <laughs> hundred years? I don't think that's even possible, really, these days. Um, But they've been through a lot together. 
Abraham and Sarah have really been through thick and thin together. Sarah has been by his side. She has been faithful to him through all of his shenanigans, right? All the things, and we didn't ever really look at all of them, but in chapter 20, um, he, he lies and says she's his sister because he's afraid. She gets taken into this other guy's harem and all this crazy, it's just crazy things that are happening, right? And Sarah doesn't throw in the towel and say, all right, Abraham, I've had enough of you. You've been, you know, a knucklehead and, and I'm through with you. She remains faithful to him. Chapter 22, when God calls him to sacrifice Isaac. We don't see any of Sarah's reaction, but I don't think Sarah was probably too thrilled about it, right? But we don't see any reaction. We don't see her saying, Abraham, what's wrong with you? She didn't question him. She was faithful to him. So it was, it's fitting here that Abraham mourns for his bride, that he weeps for, over her. Because this is not the way it was supposed to be, Right? This is not the way it's supposed to end. Death is not supposed to be the thing that separates them. But obviously because of the fall, right, because of Genesis chapter 3, that is the reality that we live in. Abraham here was 137 years old. He was 10 years older than Sarah. He would go on to live to be 175. So he would live 38 more years without Sarah. Sarah wouldn't live to see Isaac be married, which we're going to see in the next chapter. She wouldn't live to meet her own grandchildren. This woman who trusted God through all of these things, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, even though, even though she was old and she was past the age to conceive, it says, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah believed that God was faithful, that God would fulfill his promises, even when, humanly speaking, it literally was impossible, right? She was 90 years old. 90-year-old women do not have children. God fulfilled his promises. But this is a sad day here. This is a very sad day at the beginning of chapter 23. It's a sad day for Abraham. It's a sad day for the people of God. But it is not a crushing sadness. It is not an ultimate sadness. As Paul says, as he writes to the Thessalonians, we do not grieve as others do who have no hope. Abraham grieved and it was fitting. But I don't think he grieved as those who do not have hope. Because he trusted in God. He trusted in the faithfulness of God. And why? Why did he do that? Why do we not grieve as those who have no hope? It's because this life is not all there is. These relationships we have here are not all there is. Our hope is not in this material world and getting all that we can and and squeezing all that we can out of our relationships. That's not where our hope lies. We do have hope beyond the grave. And I believe that Abraham, even though he couldn't see it as clearly as we see it, right? He had hope beyond the grave. I know we've shared this story before of our brother Bruce Marker, who was an elder in Emmaus Road, uh, who passed away this summer. And we had a a bunch of people from Livingstone and people from Emmaus Road uh, gathered together at the nursing home that he was in just, uh, I think, about a week before he passed away. And, And we sang songs for probably over an hour, and there was not a dry eye in the room. It was an amazing night. And and we sang and, and prayed, and then as we left, you know, Bruce was sitting there in his wheelchair, and he 
don't think he really, he was alert, but I don't think he really knew probably who any of us were. And I, I went up and I hugged him and I said, it's Josh. I said, I love you, brother. And I said, I'll see you in the new heavens and the new earth. And just to say that with confidence and to, to really believe it, that's probably the first time I've ever really like experienced something like that and knew and said with confidence, I'm going to see you again to someone who is at that point in their life. And that we, that's not just some like, well, I hope it's true. It's true. It's so true. This is not the end. And I went to his funeral, and it was, it was sad, but it wasn't a crushing sadness. It was a hope-filled sadness. I wonder how much this informs the way that we live our lives. I don't know if I live most of my days as if this is true, as if there is something above the sun, right? I believe it. But do I really live it out? Do I really live it out in the times when I'm frustrated about stupid things or when I'm anxious about things that don't really matter? Do I try to preserve my own life? Do I try to, try to avoid thinking about death? Do we avoid thinking about death and try to say, well, you know, that's just, that's just a long ways away. Do we talk to our kids about it? <laughs> What do you do when you take your children to a funeral? Do you like, oh, hey, you know, come on, quick, quick. No, you bring them up and say, hey, let's look at Brother Bruce. He's with Jesus right now, right? There's hope. You're going to die. <laughs> but it's okay, right? It's not the end. We don't need to be afraid. I think we often avoid talking about it. We avoid facing it because we forget who we really are. Right? We forget our true identity. And we're going to see that in the midst of his grief, and then this strange story of Abraham bartering for this cave with these local people, we're going to see that Abraham remembers and declares who he really is. So our second section is we must remember and declare who we are in Christ. That's kind of this idea of redemption, right? Who are we in Christ as those who have been redeemed? Abraham says in verse 4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Abraham wasn't from there. He wasn't from that place. He didn't belong to the Hittite people. God had called him to that place in chapter 12. He said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. But that wasn't where he belonged, ultimately. That wasn't where he was from. Do you know how old Abraham was when God called him to leave and to go out? I had to look it up. He was 75, okay? Now he's 137. That's 62 years. 62 years of living in a foreign land, wandering around and living in tents. 62 years of waiting on a promise of land, right? Can you imagine living in the woods in a tent for 62 years? That's crazy, right? But he trusted in God. God had already fulfilled one of the promises, the promise of descendants. So Isaac is alive here. Isaac is about 37 years old. But still, he has not fulfilled the promise of land. And how interesting that this, it's through the death of Sarah and this weird story here that this promise of land begins to be 
fulfilled. Again, as we you know, talk about Genesis and understanding Genesis, we, we can't understand it without looking to the New Testament. And many of us are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. It's that chapter, we call it the Hall of Faith, right? It talks about the, the saints of old. But Hebrews chapter 11 gives us some really fantastic insight into Abraham and into this whole idea of him waiting for the promises of God. If you want to turn there, you can. It's on page 1007 in the Pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward, right, to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Hebrews tells us that they were sojourners and exiles. And that's what Abraham declared. I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. I'm not from here. I don't belong here. And really, ultimately, what he's saying is, I'm not even really from Ur of the Chaldeans where God called me out of, right? I'm looking forward to a better home. I'm looking forward to a heavenly home. That's where I'm going, right? This world is not my home. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Now, if we... You know, if the people would have just read Genesis at that time, they would have been like, oh yeah, Abraham's just saying, I'm not from this, this place. But he's really saying, I'm not from here, <laughs> right? I'm not from this world. I don't belong here. This is not my true home. We looked at this when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, right? The Living Stone passage. It talks about us being strangers and exiles in this world. Peter tells them to, to watch your conduct among, among the Gentiles, among those around you. Live as if you're not from here, right? Let them see that your hope is not in this world. And this is all about identity, right? It's all about remembering who we are. It's all about remembering God's redemption. God has bought us. God has redeemed us to himself. And we belong to him. We don't ultimately belong to this world anymore. So we need to remember that, and we need to declare that to the world around us. Well, then we have this crazy account here of bartering for this plot of land, 
It's, all these details, I think, seem very foreign to us. There's, there's these foreign units of money. There's these place names and these people that are hard to pronounce. And it's like, what is going on here? And it's crazy because it's a very disproportionate amount of space in this chapter, right? Verses 4 to 18 are pretty much dedicated to Abraham bartering for this cave. But it's not insignificant. This is very significant. If you have ever traveled outside of the U.S. to a country where bartering takes place, uh, you have experienced maybe a little bit of, of what this is like. Uh, I remember the first time that I went to China on a summer trip. Uh, we went to the Great Wall, and I was with my friend Tom, and we were trying to buy some T-shirts. And we walked up to the lady, and um, you know, they would uh, you would like say a price, and then. You would say, oh, you know, because we didn't, we only know a few phrases in Chinese, but one of the phrases you had to learn was Tai Guela. That means too expensive. You just say Tai Guela, and then they'll, like, give you a, a cheaper price, right? And then, you know, we're haggling with this lady, and we would, like, hold up the shirt, and, oh, yeah, yeah, that looks really good. And then, and then we would have somebody come from the side who, like, was kind of waiting in the shadows, and they'd say, oh, hey, 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 I found some cheaper shirts over here. And we would all start walking away, and then they'd run after you, no, 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 come back, come back. And you'd get the price. And it sounds crazy, right? It's like this, this kind of, it's like a game, right? It's this give and take. But that's really kind of what is going on here with Abraham. There's this, there's this haggling kind of back and forth for this plot of land. And, oh, what's, you know, what's 400 shekels between friends, you know? Well, actually, it was a ton of money. But, um, but there's these things that are just kind of seem, seem strange to us, right? But, you know, they say when in Rome, you know, do as the Romans do, right? And you, you kind of, that's the system. That's kind of how you got you to gotta work it. Um, and if you want to learn from a master barterer, you need to talk to Lindsay because she is, she's intense. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't give in, so she'll, she'll get the price she wants. So, but anyways, this, this interaction of Abraham with the Hittites, it is according to their local customs, right? He's, He's doing it in order to secure this field, in order to, to bury Sarah. And again, I said, I think this is much more important than it appears on the surface. And Meredith Klein, in his uh, Genesis commentary, which I've, I've quoted from a little bit before earlier, he says this about this, this whole purchase of the cave. He says, purchase of this family plot would be a witness to the Canaanite, to the Canaanite occupants of the land, expressing Abraham's faith that the Lord would, by redemptive judgment, at last make the alien family the triumphant possessors of their promised inheritance. It was a confession of faith, like the erection of altars in the Lord's name. So Klein is saying, what Abraham did here, it showed the people around them that Abraham was trusting in God and his promises. It was a confession of faith that God is going to fill his redemptive purposes by giving me this plot of land among you, right? This small area of land. God had promised Abraham the whole land. And all he's getting right now is this small plot, this field and this cave and a couple of trees, right? But it's a witness to the people around them that God is at work. And I think that is very significant. And that's why there's kind of this huge amount of space that's given to this topic. And I want to ask again, how does something like this inform the way that we live in this world as sojourners and exiles? Does the way that we live serve as a witness to our world? Does it serve as a confession of faith? 
Are people curious about the way that we live and the decisions that we make? Right? These guys are probably thinking, Abraham, why would you spend all this money on this just random cave, right? Like, yeah, we know you love your wife and you want to give her a proper burial, but like, why are you going through all of this? Are people curious about our decisions? Or do we just look and act and think like everyone around us? Do we just make the same decisions that are not by faith as everyone around us? Do we value the same things that everyone else values? Do we just make it appear as if our hope is in this world and not in a future promise, a future inheritance? Or like Abraham, is it about more? Is it ultimately about more than just possessing this cave and this field? Third part, which is kind of related to consummation, is we must wait in hope for our promised eternal inheritance. We must wait in hope for our promised eternal inheritance. We see this at the end of this chapter. In verse 20, it says, The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So as Abraham obtains this land, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. You can flip back a couple pages. Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 8. God said to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay? This doesn't mean Jesus is going to come back and the Jews are going to live in the land of Canaan for the rest of world history and there's going to be peace, okay? That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about a future everlasting possession. The one that Abraham was looking forward to, as Hebrews 11 tells us. He's looking forward to a city, right? Well, the word that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 17 about an everlasting possession, it's the same Hebrew word here in chapter 23, verse 20, that it was made over to Abraham as property. This property is not just, oh, a nice piece of land. It's a possession. It's something that belongs to Abraham. But it, again, it's, it's pointing back to that eternal possession that God promised in chapter 17 and pointing forward to what we saw in Hebrews chapter 11. It's, this here is bookended by those two promises and those scriptures. This is an eternal possession. It's not something that Abraham just got for temporarily while he lived the last years of his life on this earth. Again, yeah, Hebrews 11, we looked at that language, looking forward, seeking a homeland, seeking a better, 
a better place, a better possession. God is preparing a city. So again, how should this inform the way that we live in this world? I know it's easy to worry about possessions, right? It's easy to worry about our homes. It's easy to worry about our vehicles. It's easy to worry about our toys and all the things that we have. And these things are not, they're not bad things, right? These things are good gifts from the Lord that he has given to us. But Jesus tells us that our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. You know, don't worry about your stuff. It's just stuff, right? It's going to fade away. Focus on eternity. Focus on what is lasting. Or we worry about our jobs and our future job security. But as sojourners who are just passing through this world, just passing through, what does that even, what does security even mean, right? What is job security or financial security, all these things? Not that we shouldn't be wise with our money and with our jobs and all these things, but that's not ultimate. We're just passing through. We're sojourners and exiles here. What should we really be longing for? Abraham, he was longing for a city, right? And what else did we see in Genesis 17? We were told that kings would come from him. Well, we know how the story is going to end, right? We've been given the cover to the puzzle box, right? We have the testimony of Scripture. We have the full picture of how it's going to end. Abraham didn't, right? Abraham didn't know how things were going to play out. He trusted God when he couldn't see. We know what Christ has done. We know what the picture looks like. But there's still some waiting, right? There's still some hoping and some trusting. We don't know everything, but we know what we need to know, right? God has revealed himself to us in his word and given us the end of the story. Well, the king of kings did come from Abraham, the king who was promised And he had no inheritance in this world, right? He had no place to even lay his head. He lived as a sojourner and an exile. He was unjustly treated. He was unjustly tried. He was hung on a cross and crucified, tortured. He was put on that cross for our sins. And then he was placed in a cave, right? And it was a borrowed cave. <laughs> it wasn't a cave that his family owned. It wasn't a cave that, you know, some friends or, you know, part of his clan owned. It was a borrowed cave. But it didn't really even matter who owned the cave, right? Because he wasn't planning to stay there very long, right? He was only there for a short time. On the third day, he rose again, blew the door off of that stone that was in front of the the hole to the cave, blew that off. He triumphed over sin and grief and death. He appeared to his disciples. He broke bread with them. And he told them to remember, remember what he had done for them. And then go tell the world, 
Go tell the world that there is hope beyond the grave. There is hope beyond the grief that we experience in this life. Remember and go tell them about the hope. The hope of an eternal inheritance. The hope of a new city. The same city that Abraham was waiting for. The new Jerusalem. I say it all the time. And I kind of feel like a broken record. But I feel like it's true and we can't forget about it. Right? When we come to this table, we look back. Right? We remember the reason we have these elements. Is that it's a reminder that we would look back on the body broken and the blood poured out. That we would remember. But we don't just look back and say, oh, Jesus died and it's sad. We look forward in hope, right? This is a picture of the marriage feasts of the Lamb that we read in Revelation just before we read about the new heavens and the new earth, right? The new Jerusalem coming down. Every two weeks when we come to this table, this should be our reality. That we look back to what Christ has done and we look forward to what he's going to do. So there's tremendous hope. This isn't just some ritual that makes us feel good. The Lord meets with us. He comes and meets with us and strengthens our faith and reminds us of who he is and what he has done for us. This table is, is not, it's not a closed table. It's not only for those who are part of Living Stone, not only for Presbyterians. It's for all those who have trusted in Christ, who said, Jesus is my Savior. I look back to him. I have, I have faith in him, and I have hope in the resurrection and in the future promises. So if that is, if that is you, then you are welcome to come to this table. Um, I would ask those who are serving to come forward at this time.